0: Welcome along to the Irish Bookshop Podcast. We're still in lockdown, but our books, of course, aren't. And uh, though socially distance, we're back for another podcast. We're jo- We're going to start a new series tonight where we're going to be joined by up-and-coming Irish writers. Um, as always, I'm joined by the disgruntled bard and awake shaman of rural Ireland, D.A. Gaisley. Ida. Hello, Walter. How are you keeping, my friend? All good, all good. And we're joined by our ever reliable producer, author of all of them hipsters, and Master Baitnik, Zep Ryder. Hi, Zep.
1: Hello. What's up? I hope everyone's uh, keeping well under circumstances.
0: Good stuff, Zep. And our guest tonight is the prolific creator of two exciting espionage serials. She has published nine books in the past 18 months, all of which are now available on the IrishBookshop.com and other good bookstores. She is the proud creator of Sophie Hollander and Minette Nero, and blogs her adventures online at Arizona Colleen. She's now swapped the glitz of America for the glamour of South Wexford. So welcome to the Irish Bookshop, Ruby O'Connor. Hi, guys. How are you, Ruby? Thanks for joining Uh, us.
2: I am grand. I hope you guys are keeping well in the lockdown.
0: Yeah, yeah, all good, all good. Um, For you, this lockdown must be kind of mana from heaven being a writer you want uh, as much time alone as possible
2: yeah it's it's been kind of like it's it's a weirdly bittersweet thing because it's great to have the time and the space and um of course then you're reminded that that's that's a privilege and it's a real a very deep kind of privilege and you try to keep that in mind um luckily in its own weird kind of difficult way um Being from America really keeps that in check because a lot of my friends and family that are still there are in much, you know, a very dire situation, Um, a lot of risk and a lot of kind of less social floor than there is here, less support than there is here. So it's it's an interesting contrast, but I also try to channel all of that energy into what I'm doing. And it's, you know, if you can use anything, I think there's no recycler like a writer because... Any anecdote, any experience, any pain, any happiness, that all gets you know, put in the mind and cooked until something comes out that's useful.
0: Yeah, and well, you've been very successful at that. Nine books published in 18 months, incredible. I don't think anyone could match that anywhere in the world. And you're following in a lineage that includes um, Arthur Conan Doyle, George Eliot, Truman Capote by producing serialized novels. So how hard is it to weave a narrative over over so many volumes?
2: I don't think it's difficult at all. I think actually writing a serial sort of project or writing a series of books is easier than writing one. Um, Okay. Because you have, I mean, it's the same kind of function. Like you'll have like a five part, you know, um, story arc. And then in just instead of chapters, like they're books. And um, it also allows you to kind of flesh out that portion and really get into every part of those characters and how they're affected by something. So you get kind of, I think, a richer story. I mean, I would say, you know, you're, you're weaving a tapestry. So it just gives you a lot more work room and a lot more time to digest and do things like that.
0: Okay. And Sully and Lena are, they're villains, be it lovable rebels, while Sophie Hollander is Agent Guinevere, the first female agent of the Ten Dragons. Do you prefer writing the, the bad guys or the good guys?
3: Oh, Do you um... even see
0: Sully and Lena as, as bad guys or do you see them as kind of anti-heroes?
2: Well, okay, they're they're really that's really different. They're really different places to come from. Um, I will say, um, the it's harder I think to write minuet a little bit because with Sophie, Sophie's a really kind of like wonderfully aspirational sort of character. Um, she's really noble and really um, devout and really devoted to what she's doing, and that kind of makes writing her one of those sorts of things. I'm right now working on the last four books, getting them ready for release. And I discovered something really beautiful with Visionable Materials, which is the fifth book that comes out of Valentine's Day. Um, and that's when I realized like, by that point in the series, there was nothing left to set up really. There was no, you know, there are a few characters that'll come in to each unique story. But the arc of her life is really well set she's had a job for a long time she has a love interest she's not new and nubile and, and and kind of you know um figuring things out she's at a pace you know and that's when these stories i get to really dig and really deep dive into the nuance of these characters and the last four books for the first time i'm really proud of visionable materials um I don't know if I think, I don't know if I believe that there are great authors. I think there are great books. I think there are good authors, but I think more important than being a good author is to be a better author. And I think that's a lifelong pursuit. It's a decision. Like I always want to be a better author, better than I was a year ago, 10 years ago, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I hope one day when I read Sophie Hollander, I just go, oh God. Oh, you know, because what I'm doing 10, 15 years from now is is just so much better. That's already kind of happened once. I wrote a series after my first divorce um, in 2008, and I was so proud of it. And I got such um, comments. It was online, so I got a lot of positive comments and a lot of readers who subscribed. And it's it's terrible. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's so bad. Um, it's an interesting story. It's an engaging story, but it's it's really poorly written, and it's not developed in a lot of ways that it should be and there's not enough exposition in some places there's way too much like i just need it to be this way so it is okay um and now that doesn't happen as much
0: and just that story you wrote in 2008 there any connection to the the universe you're writing (laughs) now
2: no it was batman fan fiction Oh <laughs> very good! <laughs> it's um DA, if you really want to laugh at me, it's still online.
3: Well that that'll be my uh my bedtime reading tonight. So
2: <laughs> Yes, yeah. It's um it's I don't take it down for a couple of reasons. One, um, part of me does still love it. I, I go back and it's like seeing pictures of yourself as a child. You know, you look at it and it's oh it's ghastly. The outfit's terrible, your hairstyle is something your mother gave you, it's dreadful. <laughs> but it reminds you of of happiness and it also to keep me humble and so that other people aren't intimidated if they read something I do and they think, well, I couldn't necessarily do that. And I don't mean that to be a a braggart. It's just that writing requires a lot of esteem. Mm. And there's a lot of ways that people don't realize that, again, I don't think there are great writers. I think there are writers who just keep working and keep getting better. And then create things that we think are great and so if you're not a good writer yet yet is the biggest word in that sentence just keep doing it so like if you read what i do and you think like i wouldn't i wouldn't have that kind of skill neither did i for a little while (laughs) i just didn't quit
0: well that's that is fantastic advice because i guess there's going to be a lot of people listening to this especially now in lockdown, who are going to, maybe they have an idea, maybe they're sitting at home with a whole book planned out in their head, but the thoughts of, will anybody read this? Can I actually write it? Can I make this work? Do I have the skills necessary? And uh, what you're telling people there is to just keep going, keep working.
2: Absolutely. And it almost doesn't, like on a level, it almost doesn't matter if anybody's going to read it. There's that fantastic, mm-hmm. I believe it's Toni Morrison quote, if, if the book you wish to read doesn't exist, you must write yeah. it. Um so yeah, uh if one person and I always say if one person really loves what you do then it was worth it.
0: I did it start in 2008 or were you writing before that?
2: Oh, no, I was writing like pfft, my whole life. I actually um I originally was going to go into journalism. I worked in radio and television when I was in high school. Um I was the junior journalist of the year at my school and then I was the second runner up of the state my senior year. I have been published several times as a teenager. Um, It's just a very different kind of writing than what I do now. Um, So I think writing was always going to happen. It just kind of requires, again, it just requires a a tremendous amount of steam or um, a willingness to fail without worry. And I think that's a thing I got, I really got in a big way uh, from Ireland. And I'm really grateful for that. You know, when I talk about writing in Ireland, even in a pub, even with people, um, they ask what I write about. They find it interesting. Um, in America, the question was always whether or not I was successful, if I made money. Um, and that kind of engagement from, the, from people about, you know, the creator of art for his own sake, mm. is, um, it, it, it's very freeing and it's very encouraging.
0: And what inspires you? When you get up in the morning, what, what's the thing that drives you to keep writing? Because, I mean, as we said, it's prolific. It's incredible.
2: Oh, I, I don't think I have a choice. I don't think I could stop if I wanted to. I um, I, I. plan to give a class if and when this, this pandemic ever ends um, And and teach people about, like, I have a method that I do. But I think the biggest thing of it is create characters and I mean really create characters know them inside and out know that you know, their favorite cup of tea and the worst day of their life and what they secretly wish they could have been when they grew up all of that kind of stuff and then when you have created a character that's so real um then what they're thinking and what they would do just comes really naturally to you and then you want to spend more time with them, and then writing is very easy.
0: Because we- you re- re-
3: Sorry, DA, you go on. Do you write any poetry, Ruby? It's yes. an up and coming thing. Poetry is getting very popular now again in Ireland for a while there it kind of died off, but it's, it's up and coming now again. Do you write any poetry?
2: I do. Um, not as much, um, but I, I used to, like I said, the times I was published as a teenager were poetry. Right. So um, I actually wrote, I think I've got a book in there from high school. It's probably got three or 400 poems in it. Uh, it just wasn't so much a, I, I, did, I didn't really develop as a poet. I think my voice didn't, stayed quite limited where when I'm writing fiction, I'm able to really like get down into like elements of things. Yeah. Um, Infissionable. Uh, Sophie is put in kind of a deep cover situation in North Korea. So she's in a place where like she's an bunker and can't associate with anyone. Just by being there, it's a danger. And it forces her to confront like the idea of a person being an island. You know, the people that you do have in your life, even if you sometimes feel very alone. And, you know, it makes her have to confront things about... Um, her childhood after her parents died, that she had just kind of ran forward and focused on like continually forward movement. And she didn't go back and deal with those things. And now with nothing to distract her, that's that comes to the surface. And she has to confront that and has to deal with that. And it also really tests her limits of endurance about loneliness and how much satisfaction you find from doing something you believe is the right thing to do. Um, When it's really hard, when you might be freezing, when you might be starving, when you begin to wonder if people are out there, you know, or if you're genuinely alone in a situation. And once you create a character like that and you just drop that character in that place, that stuff comes out. But that allows you to talk about the nature of humanity and loneliness and love and how we hope that we have connections with people. Um, when we question whether or not the things that we're doing are really noble or matter, do we matter? And I can't can't do that as well with poetry. I can be clever, but I can't write something that I think someone might read and feel like a person who doesn't exist understands them. Yeah, there's,
1: there's this old saying that I'm reminded of, that says, you know, <clears throat> I can't remember exactly, so I'm going to paraphrase it, but basically it says, if you, I think it's an old African proverb, and it says, if, if you tell me a fact, I'll remember it, um, or I'll learn it, but if you tell me a story, then I'll remember it forever, which is, you know, if, if you go into into the character's head <clears throat> and it's a story and it's, it's whatever kind of moral um, dilemma they're facing, it's more real if you can if you can relate to them in some way, you know.
2: Right. Yeah. And it's moments like that when you can really, really, I think, touch people. Yeah. You know, exactly. and that's kind of the purpose of of what I'm doing. So if you can get down into it, I remember, um, and it's just it's so silly, but like you're reminded of moments when you have those those sorts of things that you cling to. Um, I'm reminded you had asked me about books that had had an impact and I, I made a list and I kind of tried to limit myself to ones that I could only like recall off the top of my head and ones that like had a tremendous impact on me. And sometimes those things happen in ways that you, like you don't necessarily expect. Like, uh, Gene Wilder wrote a memoir called Kiss Me Like a Stranger. And it's very, I don't want to say boilerplate, that's not really the way to describe it, but it's very kind of he's famous and funny and he was married to another person who's famous and funny and these are all things that you probably know about him you know about like you know uh, Richard Pryor and Gilda Radner and then you finish the book and it's just a standard kind of happy sort of book and then on the last page after he's talked about basically that he's at this point in his life he's retired he's older he's married again he's happy the very very last page of the book is this anecdote out of the chronology of the book that is him in his office trying to write a script and Gilda Radner comes in dressed as a ballerina and she dances around his desk and then throws herself in his lap while he's trying to work and says you should write a book and you should call it kiss me like a stranger and he kissed she kissed him on the end of his nose and she goes that would be a good title for a book and then she danced out of the room and the very last line of the book is you're right Gilda it was I cried my eyes out when I read that the first time. Like it hit me like a brick that, you know, this woman had passed away and tragically and too young. And yet he has moments like that that are still in his memory, that still have this resonance. And I, I finished the book so grateful that he had given that to me. It was like we had a secret.
1: Yeah, yeah. is beautiful
2: isn't it yeah and it's just lovely and like you have that ability with writing sometimes is it's not necessarily even what you're saying it's that putting it at the end and keeping it succinct it reminds you all together and all over again why it was tragic
1: yeah now you're going to remember that book forever exactly it was just like you said the normal kind of you know, most of it's kind of happy. And then that's it, you don't, you don't take anything away and you don't really learn from it. But now it, it touched on a much deeper level because of just like one little bit that's in there. And that, that's, that's, that's the power that someone has as a writer is to just put that little bit in there that, that someone will keep with them for the rest of their lives.
2: Well, and I think the hard part of being a writer is knowing how to trim away to just those things. Yeah. And then lay them into a story, and then leave them. Yeah, you know, it's like you're you're leaving like a landmine of feeling for someone to discover. That's
1: it. Yeah. Well to you be know. able to, be That's able a to line a landmine of a feeling. That's brilliant.
0: To be able to take a memory like that and you know store it forever on a page, to give it to other people, and to turn it into a mythos, nearly. It's, it's an incredible responsibility for, for any author. Is, 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 there, is there much of your life transferred onto the pages of um, Sophie and Aminette?
2: Uh, yes, but not in any way that would... Like, my stories are very twisted and very changed. Mm. Um, I think the truth is, like, in, in my personal experience, I think how, like, okay... I think that all feelings are like a long sustained scream (laughs) and it's just how loud how long how painful how much like that and how much of that you whittle away and what's remained is is what you have is what feeling is and i think um because like you know what, what what is pain well pain is the first time you skin your knee falling off a bike or then it's the first time someone breaks your heart and then it's that time you didn't get into a school maybe that you wanted to, or you realized that you weren't going to be good at this thing that you really love. And then it's when a, somebody you love dies. Or it's that time that you have to fight an illness. And those, like you think you know what pain is and then you discover something new that makes you go like, Oh, I no idea what pain was. This is pain. And that can be a really helpful thing as well. Like, Um, I had a son, he passed away when I, uh, well, it was a miscarriage. It was a late, late term miscarriage. And I was really fortunate in that that so became my definition of pain that for a really long time, when like some things happened to me, like a divorce, (laughs) this isn't pain. Losing a kid is pain. This is nothing. And like for a long time, like that kind of really weirdly helped me through. My son exists in all sorts of things I do all of the time. He is a go-to many times when I, you know, give charity or when I am, when I choose to better myself in a situation, when I, when I, you know, when I write real pain, it's there. And,
1: uh,
0: have you found that writing has over the years has managed to help you deal with those feelings Help you no them
2: no because i keep them i keep them like wrapped in cellophane until i need them again i think the only thing that helps with some kinds of pain the loss of someone that you dearly love or a decision you really shouldn't have made something like that mm-hmm. um is when you give that to someone else, either to spare them or to relate to them. If someone reads Minuet Nero and her experience with Yuri um, resonates with them, and when she in kind of anguish says like, why did I stay here so long? That I hope resonates for people who who were in relationships of all kinds and stayed when they most certainly should have left. And that feeling when you get out where you should be proud of yourself, what you've just done is a big thing that requires a lot of strength and energy. Um, and instead you just kind of feel empty, you feel dumb because it took you so long to do something that should seem so obvious. And you find a way to take your emancipation and turn it into a club and beat yourself down a little bit for a little while. Um, I hope when they read that book, they, they go like, I, that's what that feels like, yeah, a little bit, and if I've done that, then every bad thing that has ever happened to me is one hundred percent worth it.
0: I think you've definitely done that um I think it's it's gonna resonate with a lot of people, and I think authors like yourself are the alchemists of our day, you know you're you're turning words into. You're able to transfer feelings through words on a page straight into the body of somebody, the brain of somebody else. It's it oh, is Oh yeah, it's magical.
2: Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, I thought about um, you know, so I was making the list of books, and it is often like one or two lines. Those are the things that make a book just kind of stick out to you. Um, especially with things like like children's writing. Oh gosh, good. And we're in kind of a, a renaissance. We're just, you know, in that, that period of a lot of really brilliant children's writing and young adult writing. Um, a lot of it is dystopian, which I kind of, kind of am a little bit a bummer about. I don't want to say like it's too much of it or anything. Um, I just kind of like I wish it was peppered in a little bit more. There's nothing wrong with liking Divergent or The Hunger Games or even Harry Potter, things like that. Mm-hmm. But when I think about like Bridge to Terabithia, and how that book teaches children very kindly that sometimes people die and they're not old or they're not sick and it's not fair and it hurts. That's a really careful lesson and it's really well done in that book. Or in Dear Mr. Henshaw when he's coping with a divorce and it's very gracefully handled by Cleary. Um, It's heartbreaking at exactly the right time because you wanna break kids' hearts because they're still small enough and tender enough that they can climb in your lap and you can soothe them and you can teach them that these things in the world don't lessen the good things. And like, I love when children's literature does that. I think the one that sticks to me more than any other is Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, which was my absolute favorite children's book. Um, Because with two things immediately, one, Charlie's poor and it's, It's very real in a way that children, I think, would understand. When it's put to that, it's not necessarily living in, in, in kind of a shack that bothers him. It's not necessarily not having certain kinds of clothes or anything like that that bothers him. It's this idea of loving chocolate and not being able to have it when he wishes to, and it being around him all the time. That want is around him all the time. The knowledge that other kids get to have it and he doesn't is around him all the time. That That is a very real thing for a lot of kids, and that's very relatable, and if it isn't relatable to you, being aware that it is a truth for other children is also really important. And the other part is that the most successful character in that story is a complete whack doodle. Like Wonka is a strange man, and he's the only person in the room who doesn't know it, and he's not to be pitied because he's unusual. It's not the point to point out that he's unusual. He is successful. He's the one they all wish to be like or to get the attention of, to be valued by, and he is unusual. And those were two really powerful lessons for me as a kid. You know, that there were people in this world that, that, that understood those dynamics. And also, it is possible to be really strange and to be really happy at the same time.
1: Yeah, that's very true. The other thing I was going to ask you about Ruby is, uh, just kind of changing the subject a bit, but keeping oh, sure. keeping in the <clears throat> in the line of emotion and feeling. Um, I know you're you're a big uh, you're a big lover of music, and I follow you on Instagram, and I saw that when you write certain characters, you've got kind of soundtracks for each character. So just go through through a bit of that, uh, how important music is for you when you're writing and. Are you bring
2: that oh. in? Oh, it's essential. It's essential. Um, there are um there are songs that after working with them, every time I hear them, Oh, a really good example of that actually. Um, sorry, you guys, little spiffed. Um so there is a story with Sophie Hollander where she goes to a Christmas party with another person in that works in the the agency. And it was an actual Christmas party that was held in London that year. And the Christmas party was like a theme and it was set up to be like an 80s office party and at one of the points in the the chapter they've had some drinks they've been dancing she's just really having a genuinely good time and Vienna by Ultravox comes on and they are singing it out loud practically shouting it and it's just happiness and because of the nature of her work, she doesn't have a lot of opportunities to just be silly like that. And every time to this day, that was about three years ago, I think I wrote that story. Uh, every time I hear Ultra Box, I just get this tremendous feeling of happiness because I am reminded of her like on the street in London, practically shouting the song with this person that she's very dear friends with. So that song now belongs to that story in my head. Yeah. Uh, Which is a a lovely thing to get to do. A lot of times we watch movies or we read books. Other people do it to us. Other people will put that in a context and we never shake it. But to have gotten to do that myself is really nice. Mostly because um, I don't get to do it in writing because of copyrights. So there was actually a lot of musical cues in the stories when I wrote them the first time that I then had to take out. And um, that's a bummer. <laughs> I, hate, I hate that.
1: It's a pity, because I, and the same in my book, I actually, when I read, you wrote about that, how bummed you are that you couldn't put it in. And that's when I actually realized that I, you can't put it in because I had bits like that in my book and I, and I had to take them all out, just thanks to you. Otherwise I would have been sued, you know? <laughs>
2: Yeah, or you, worse, they'll take it away from you, which is a real bummer. Yeah, well, they um,
1: they tend to destroy, don't they? So uh, yeah, you'd have
2: to go back and reissue and have it all removed. Like the, I think the worst of it, I put there's a, a Peter Sellers recording that is in a, a, a very important part, and my personal favorite, which is such oh, I hate it so I hate that I cut this out. Like I'm going to brag about my own stuff for a second. Um, when there's a there's a scene in one of the books where she's tortured. And it's peppered all through the series that one of the things she likes—it's quite lowbrow, um, at least by her and her colleague standards—is she's a very big fan of Eurovision. Mm. And so, after this incident of torture, um, she's like laying on the on a floor in this, you know, cell, and she starts kind of singing the words to "SOS" by Abba. <laughs> and the way I wrote it, kind of. It really points out how tired the lyrics to that song are out of context
1: yeah
2: and also this thing that she's holding on to that's you know a part of home when there's just no other comfort in, in the situation to be found and all of that had to be scrapped and i hated it so much <laughs> oh I was so bummed out uh, but
1: then oh, it will be it forces you to kind of think of, of another way of, of, of explaining the, that same feeling that you would have normally done in some yeah. ways in, in your own voice, which is-
2: Absolutely, which is better, of course.
1: Yeah.
2: But like, it's also one of those things that's kind of tough because it's an example of how those sorts of things, like I didn't have to do that with poetry, thankfully, because I used a couple of poems in different series, um, which I did not have a problem with. I was able to just cite the reference and, and use them but we don't live in a world that's void of those sorts of influences or references. So to remove them, it, it, I think it does kind of sterilize the characters just a bit. And that kind of bums me out. The idea that she was new romantic, you know, right out of college and wore silly suits and, you know, really loves like a Nola Gay to me, that that's part of her character. It's how I see her in my head. And because like, as a writer i'm ha- like half a painter i'm the paint and the brush and the idea but you're the canvas yeah like the second the book is done it doesn't belong to me anymore it belongs to you yeah and what you see if i've done a good job then what you see in your mind is is close enough it's close to what i was trying you know to say but it's never the same for everyone
1: no that's the beauty of it isn't it? because if you
2: watch the film it's just the same for everybody But with a book, it's each person has their own imagination. Well, writing is a collaborative effort, even if you're writing alone. Yeah. You know, we, we, we have an intimacy, the reader and I. I am giving this thing, and I hope it lands. I hope it works. But I don't get to decide that. And that's why I think it helps also coming to terms with like when young writers are like oh god what if people hate what i do and i'm like man it'd be amazing if people hate what you do yes. because hate requires a lot of commitment. Yes. Yes. It does. I would much rather somebody hated what i did than was like eh.
1: Yeah, indifference is the worst thing. It's it's Yeah,
2: i'd probably well, not finishing it. Like why well, started it and then i lost interest yeah oh that's a kill shot like (laughs) that would be terrible
1: rather than just read it to the very end and say well i i I hated this but i read every fucking word of
3: it
2: (laughs) yeah well and if somebody came back with well like i know for a fact one of the people that read it um is on my instagram and they read one of the books and came back and they were like why isn't this character dead yet (laughs) and i was like well you you know because it's not how that happens And the person really hates that character and wanted that character to go. And when I tried to kind of explain, that's not how it happens for most people. That's not how most people leave toxic situations and relationships. They usually stick around for a while. It usually gets worse before it gets better. And when I kind of started saying like, this is a more, in my opinion, realistic way to approach this. It's not just a fantasy of a thing. It's the reality of the thing um he had to kind of confront his impatience yeah and he's like I don't like seeing this character I like in this situation he's like I don't want this to happen and I was like right but it's not happening to you
1: but it's amazing that you could elicit that much feeling in the reader that they feel that strongly about it that's a real gift you know
2: yeah that was I I felt pretty good (laughs) it's like that thing i'm gonna make this person cry that's the best day of a writer's life i think when you just sit down you're like they're gonna cry
3: (laughs) speaking of uh situations ruby if i may for a minute Mm -hmm. what's your thoughts on the situation in uh your home country the united states of america at the moment
2: oh that's its own podcast man
3: We're doing uh, do you think, do you think Joe, Joe, will, Joe Joe will have a tough time healing wombs over the last few, four years? Do you think Joe's the man to do it?
2: I, I don't think that's a four-year process. Right. It wasn't uh, a lot of what has happened now, and that's not to not give Trump all of the credit that he deserves for what's happening, but an awful lot of the ugly underbelly of a lot of those problems was in place. He, he didn't necessarily create a situation as much as he amplified it. And right. it would be a grave problem to say, well, he's gone. This is, you know, yeah, so yeah. let's just turn this around because that idea of like w- w- the want of unity or the want for it to be, you know, ignored um, doesn't solve it or really address it. And then it's only a matter of time before something else worse happens. Uh, I think it's a long process that involves a great deal of examination and conversation. And it requires it requires really looking at the state of things. And that's a thing a lot of Americans struggle with. They want to be uh, the shining city on a hill, they want to be um this example for the world the most powerful country in the world they want to be this this great thing and they want it so badly that they just willfully ignore problems that are the thing that kind of make those accusations i mean i don't know i think there's a big difference between saying like um well that wouldn't happen we're in the most secure boat in the water god himself couldn't sink this ship and going yeah, I don't think that uh, iceberg did much damage. Where we're going to be fine. <laughs> like, they're very, very different statements of confidence. And when you yeah. hear an awful lot of elected fi- officials tell each other and themselves and their constituents over and over and over again how great a person is or how great a place is after a while, it sounds less like a declaration and more like um, assurance. Yeah,
1: they're trying to convince themselves of it. It makes them, I, I don't really believe
2: they just have to say it over and over yeah and that's the, that's the complicated thing um it's a long long road but that's because it hasn't been examined in a way that it needs to be in a very long time
3: right and if Four i can bring ben, it do it <laughs> were were you happy to see then i suppose the first female vice president elected was that do you think that's that's a good thing for america oh. or do you Do you think, was it the right person to be picked? Um, You know, there was other great female politicians in America as well. Do you think Kamala Harris would be a a good vice president?
2: That is a lot of questions. Um, Am I glad to see the first woman vice president to address each one? Um, Well, yeah, of course. I think it's well overdue. I think the first female president is well overdue. I'm not going to act like a woman getting something a man has had for 200 plus years in 2021 is a victory. It it's about time. Um, You know that's kind of a big problem is that these things are accolades that get treated like they're flukes. Um, It's just it's not, and it's there's a lot of systemic reasons that hasn't happened yet. And again, this is about addressing those. So, treating this thing like it's a one-off uh, isn't really helpful for for that and for growth. Um, I do think there are people who would have been better. I'm not going to name names because I still hope to have readers at the end of this podcast. Um, that's not to say that I don't think she's going to do yeah, the job. Yeah. I think, I think that um, I think she's an extremely capable woman. Um, but my politics are not Republican, Democrat, even though I'm an American. So I did vote for them. Uh, but I feel like America has such incredible potential to do so much more than what is sometimes limited in the party system that it has. That's kind of the, the, the complicated relationship. Yeah. With America. To love the place is to say like you can do so much better than all of this and I don't necessarily just mean Biden or Harris. I mean that system. I mean that like healthcare and college tuition and poverty and the systemic racism that exists there that should be eradicated and the class dynamics that are in place that are just wrong and there are so many things in America, there's just no reason it couldn't do so much better. Um, and so it, that, that's the complicated kind of relationship of a place is that I have been told many times, unfortunately, by people I know, that just saying that very, to me, very simple thing is read sometimes as my criticizing or not loving or not caring about America. It's not true. It's not not loving a place to say, you should be doing better than this. Uh, if I didn't think they could do better than this, that would be one thing. You know.
1: Okay. Yeah, okay. but it's kind of like if, 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 if a child. If you just say to a child, "Just do whatever the fuck you want," you're not you're not bringing them up to be a good child. If you really love them, you're going to say to them, "Look, you can you can be better than this," you know.
2: Yeah, exactly, and and that's kind of the part that like it, it's the puzzling part of. And I feel like a lot of people my age are feeling that in America, that a lot of the ideals that I was raised on, you don't necessarily see reflected even by some of the the generation that raised us. And it's puzzling, you know, um, to be raised by decent, moral, thoughtful people, to care about other human beings, to be aware of want and necessity, to do the right thing, even if it's hard. And then to be in a situation where you're put in the doing that costs you sometimes relationships with those people and that's very, like mm. you have to choose at the end of the day, do you actually believe those things or were those just things you said?
1: Mm. I know exactly what you mean.
2: And no. that's, that's been me with, well, a lot of my family especially since I moved here.
1: And yeah, you and me were talking about this the other night, Ruby, about uh, I don't want to really say comparing Ireland to America, but you know, because everywhere has problems, but Absolutely, yeah. But you were saying to me that a lot of the Irish friends that you have don't quite understand that um, they really have it a lot better than they think they do in in a lot of ways. Well,
2: and I think that's kind of the beautiful fabric of irish people as well is one of the things with freedom and it's it's hard to explain to some people but it's i think it's absolutely true it's chronic dissatisfaction mm. if you have 5 you need to want 10 if you want if you have 10 you should have 25 5 25 is to 50 etc 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 because if you don't and you relax and it becomes we have these things i don't i don't know that you keep them yeah uh, progress is literally that it moves forward it it you know it creates it moves it moves on and so one of the things that's quite interesting to me that I like to do because I think being a writer means you have to confront lots of different um perspectives that are not your own um so I like to watch a lot of things like on YouTube that are differences of perspective or people's you know takes on things and sometimes there are these amazing videos where someone will sit down and watch it like a music video with their dad or their grandfather. And there was this amazing one for um, I think it was a story of OJ uh, by Jay-Z. and the father like he didn't like it and he was like, this is you know this is really kind of sensational and... Um, he's just, he's just trying to be, you know, um, like he's trying to, you know, make a case for the stuff. And the, the, the son was like, that's really, you know, that's what he's trying to do. That's what he's trying to say. And you can kind of see, um, between these two generations where one person having not seen the progress that happened in their lifetime, basically being comfortable with where they are because they remember not having the things that they had, Versus, uh, you know, progress versus someone saying, right, but standing still is essentially moving backwards. We need to have better. We need to have more. There's still all these problems. These need to be addressed. And I think that that's a thing about Irish people that I absolutely adore is that, though I do think sometimes they, they don't really maybe know how, how good they have it by comparison. What does that comparison even mean? Do they have things as good as they should have them? No. Are there things about this government that should be better? Yes. Are there things that their children and their family and their elderly people in this country deserve and don't have? Yeah. And that anger, that's not ingratitude. That's constancy. And I think that's what just makes me love this place. The first time I came to this country was in 2012. It was three years before I moved here. And I was very involved in the political movements in America and exhaustingly so. And then I came here and it was just incredible to me. Little things like um, my husband went to Donahue and Nesbitt in London, I mean, uh, in Dublin, and he was watching GAA. So I was kind of on my own and (laughs) I went out and I was handing some sandwiches out to people and just walking around, um, you know, speaking to the people who were sleeping rough. And I saw this group of kids in their, their local kit walking around collecting money for breast cancer. And you know may, maybe someone in their family had it, maybe. I don't know. Maybe that was a thing. Or maybe they're just aware that life is not a meritocracy and that illnesses happen and that they're unkind and unfair and it's the decent thing to do. And it was such an example in a, in a group of examples uh, on that that trip that two weeks I was here of how I felt like the kind of person I hoped I was was the kind of person Irish people were oh, yeah. Seems to me, yeah. so when I moved here in 2015 I wanted so badly to earn the right to be considered one of those people you know I wanted to earn being good enough to be one of you yeah. and that's five years later. That's that's still how I feel.
0: Well, Ruby, you've you hit on something there. That's that's really the the elephant in the room, you know, because you've you've made such valid points there. And I know, like looking at America, like I grew up in the eighties and nineties, the same as Zeph. He was in South Africa. I was here. We all looked to America as this beacon of democracy and, and hope, you know, and, and it was the land of immigrants, the land where you could do anything. And right now you can see that the form of social democracy that's, that's kind of around Europe would be considered reds under the bed in America. It's, just, it's completely unacceptable, which is crazy. But at the same time, you still have just Sully in America, which we, and thanks to the European Union, have eradicated here that we, we have a, terror, a toxic system at the moment where people who are coming to live here do not have the rights that they should have. And, um, you know, it's something that was brought in here by conservative government and uh, with the support of the European Union. And what we basically have is if a child is born here and their parents aren't Irish, British or certain European citizens, they, they have no right. They can be thrown out in the morning. And at least that's that's something that's that foundation still lays in America. It lays in a lot of African countries. It lays in South American countries. But do you find that somebody who has moved over here who obviously loves Ireland by everything that you've said there? That, that it is difficult to be accepted as a full citizen.
2: Well, see, and I know, and I tell you, I don't even think it's fair for me to answer that question. Like I'm, I'm a white woman from America and it's 2020. Like I'm not the person who should be taking the pulse there. Yeah. Um, it, it, if it's difficult for me at all, it's miles easier than it would yep. be for someone from a, from a different country or from a different, gen, a different race or someone of, of that nature. And so it's just, that's just one of those questions where I feel like rather than have my opinion, um, this is an opportunity for, for me to say, we should seek out people who don't have all of those privileges and amplify their voice. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Yeah, we need to end that system, you know, that.
2: Uh... Well, there... oh, Precision?
1: Not just direct provisioning, but but the whole system of, <laughs> you know, because because you you would have this kind of thing that I don't want to go too deeply into it, but where, where people would be in a pub and say they'd be of a different color and, and they'd be born in Ireland, they'd be here for generations and someone said, "But well, where are you from? Well, where are you really from? That kind yeah. of thing, you know, and, 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 and we we're privileged enough me and you uh, even though we're immigrants we don't really get that until they maybe hear our accents but then even then they don't go too much into it you
2: know no and then it's it's usually even then it has kind of a um it's a bit of a you know it's a joke or it's a, a light thing i when i first moved here all anyone wanted to ask me about was donald trump yeah and i was able to say like ah, i i would rather take my lighter out and set myself on fire than answer this question yeah, <laughs> I'm. I'm just here with my pint, you know. <laughs> and, um, it, yeah, but it's still. It was still kind of a novelty. People just wanted to hear me, you know. Usually, take a shot at him, and then it'd be a moment of conversation, and then it moves on. There was never any inauthenticity. It was always like a, oh, you live here. It's not a holiday. Oh, and then that was that.
1: <laughs> I know exactly. I, I
2: can relate. Totally. So. Um, yeah, it, I've been very, very privileged in every sense of the word being here.
0: Yeah, it's, it's interesting because there is a false narrative that, that Ireland was somehow cut off from the rest of the world and that this this thing about the, uh, the indigenous Irish not being affected by other people, absolute rubbish. We're all immigrants. Everyone, like there was various waves that came to this island and everybody's an immigrant at the end of the day. You can't, you can't expect a culture to to, blo- to flourish unless you have new people and new cultures coming into it and affecting it. Like the area yeah. that we live in here in South with Port and Bargy, it's completely culturally different than the rest of Ireland because we were cut off by a mountain and uh, by the sea. And we basically had people coming from all sorts of different countries, North Africa, um, Western Europe. Um, and it completely affected us and in a good way, you know, we, well, we met, yeah. You
2: and know- there isn't a person I have met yet in this country that isn't touched in a familial way by someone who has emigrated out. Absolutely. And if, Oh, if, we were everywhere. <laughs> yeah, I, I got into it one time, like in a bar in London, uh, Dublin, because, you know, I'm classy. And <laughs> the guy was making a comment to a girl that like, oh, this place used to be so much better like 20 years ago. He goes, now you see them everywhere referring to immigrants. And I, my head about turned around my body and I just kind of like, excuse me, You know, I'm about to get in here. And I was like, how on earth are you from a country that had an exodus? Yeah. That went all over the world, that depended on the open arms of other countries, and then you're going to say something ignorant like that. I said, plus, these people have a right to be here, because it was an American guy. I said, these people have a right to be here. You don't. If you don't like Ireland, go home.
0: (laughs) Yeah.
2: <laughs> he, and he just—he, I mean, he was so unprepared for that, and I was like, you know, because I will say, the one time you do run into people who who have those opinions, um, those kind of narrow-minded opinions, uh, they don't seem to have them at me, and I think that's quite telling. Mm, if know. you don't like immigrants, you're speaking to one.
1: Ruby, um, you know, um, you and me, we're both immigrants, and, and we, we both ended up in Wexford. We could have ended up anywhere in Ireland. So tell us a bit about how you ended up in Wexford and, and what you love about being here.
2: I We chose Wexford. Uh, my husband's family is from here. They're from Folk's Mills, and oh, that's the other one I can never remember. Folk's Mills, I believe, is where his father's from, um, and so we, we looked in the area, but I think we always just kind of wanted to live in Wexford. I don't think I have the, the fortitude for the incredible weather on the other coast. It's, it's sweeping and beautiful and vast and I would not be able to take it. <laughs> so like places like Galway and Cork, they're, they're, they're absolutely stunning. And I'm, I've loved visiting them. I think I needed a place that was gonna be a bit more mellow. And that's, that's what I love about Wexford, not just in the weather, but the people too. Wexford definitely has. There's a there's a, there's a magical energy and yeah. ease about the place.
1: Yeah, you can sense it when you walk about the place. It's kind of like a magnetism, you know. It it kind of vibrates throughout the ground, like you know. Absolutely. And and I know you're reasonably well traveled as far as I've uh, I've noticed. Um, uh, how do you feel about? Is this, if you had the choice of living anywhere in the world, is, is this where you would, where
2: you'd stay in any way? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, now, like, if I won like Lotto Millions or something like that, yes. I might own a home somewhere else. But I still think I would live here for a couple of reasons. Um, well, like the, the pandemic is a, a, a unique example of that. Uh, I have been in this house since March of last year. I have, I think, left five times, including two doctor's visits. Um, Nobody bothers me. (laughs) Nobody, you know, shows up unannounced. It's not exceptionally loud or bothersome. Um, When I was younger and I lived in a small town in Georgia, all I wanted to be was in a big city where everything was happening you know, where things were exciting and culture. But I, I was going to be one of those people. I was going to finally write something so good that like I was going to have a literary set, you know, like they had in the 20s um, or like Emerson had had, you know, in the 1800s. And I was going to, you know, be surrounded by all those, that, that culture and that music. It was going to be just incredible and lush. And now that I'm twice the age of that and I have gotten out of that place, I love that Europe gives me the ability to travel when I wish to to those places and pretty easily there's a lot of opportunity to travel um but when I don't wish to do that when I don't want to be moved or shaken um the quiet and the calm of where I am
3: speaking of traveling Ruby your mm-hmm. character uh, Sophie Holland um Hollander. Uh, Hollander, sorry. It's okay. I have a bit of, a, bit of a, a chest affection here. But uh, was the first female spy in the Pentagon, um, wasn't she? So uh, tell us a little bit about that.
2: Um, well, P-Pin Dragon, it's a, an agency in England. Um, I, okay, so I saw the movie Kingsman in 2014 and one thing I really liked about it was that, so here there's Roxy, you know, this female spy, and she's the one that, that prevails, even though the movie definitely pivots to another character. But at no point in the movie, and I listened, I leaned in, at no point in the movie is it pointed out that she's the first. And I right. really loved that Matthew Vaughn did that, because it's like 2014, again, with the, the comment previously about um, Harris, anytime I he- see in this kind of age, well, the first woman to do something, it just kind of makes me sad, not happy. Like we should be past this by now. And it got me thinking, okay, so there wasn't that, what would that life be like? And so I like rolled the clock back and tried to say like, when would it make sense for that to be a benchmark that was set in an, in an agency? And I went back to the 90s, the early 90s. And then I was able, I actually studied a lot of stuff with London and I picked 1992 because there was some rumblings about um, gender quotas and which had already been passed in, you know, England, but hadn't quite kind of hit a mark. So you still had a situation where a lot of things were really disproportionately male. And so I wanted to kind of go into that and examine what would that be like? what would the person who did that be like how would it affect them to be in an all-male field especially in an all-male field that isn't going to be out loud chauvinistic yeah these are gentlemen you know so they're never going to say like you know she doesn't belong or or you know it's not going to be like guys in a construction site howling at her um but that doesn't mean that they aren't kind of misogynistic at times it doesn't mean that they don't unfortunately fall into moments of not believing her do you know what epistemic injustice is no okay um epistemic injustice which is a phenomenal book by miranda fricker it's a uh type of um it's a philosophy book um talks about how when society creates a scenario wherein people's experiences, their actual lived experiences, are less credible because of who they are. And the kind of, you know, there's there are biases that come with that. So, like um, when people when, when women tell stories about rape and they're just kind of, you know, are you sure, love? You had a bit to drink, you you were flirting with them earlier in the night. This is this way that we begin to challenge a person's explicit statement of their reality. We are trained to kind of not believe them so much. And this is a thing that happens to women a lot in things like healthcare, care, uh, where it can take a woman up to 20 visits to get a diagnosis that usually takes a man three. Um, is there an entire book written about that actually called Invisible Women? That's actually really very good. And if they're a person of color, that's even worse. That's even harder. Um, And also because of the disproportionate situations of poverty, that's even harder. Um, So there were going to be times when the assumption that maybe she couldn't handle something because she was a woman would happen. There are times when um, comments would be made about about her wearing makeup or about, you know, um, the capacity to do certain things in the field. And I wanted to really get into what that would look like you know, with a character who just wants to do the job. They don't want to be the first someone to do something. They don't want to be, you know, uh, an example. They
1: don't want to be token, yeah. Token they just the want
2: point. to be a good spy. spy. Yeah,
1: exactly.
2: And I feel like a lot of times with women, especially, um, if, especially if you're really good at something, you know, if you work really hard and you're really good at something, um that kind of exceptionalism almost works against you um when i worked in radio that was a thing that was said to me a lot about um, that i was great at the job but that time slot really suits a man's voice more than a woman's um which that's just you know what do you say to that what do you say like i can't do anything about that and so you watch a person who maybe didn't, wasn't there as long or didn't work as hard or wasn't as consistent or believable, um, take a job that you wanted and that you were qualified for. And for a reason that's silly. Um, yeah. And that kind of thing happens all the time to women. And uh, sometimes when you make that case, you know, it's pointed out that you are difficult. <laughs> And so I wanted to kind of point out that like for a lot of women, what you do is you just accept it. You put your nose down, you work really, really hard, you drive forward. And then one day, weirdly, you look up and you have this seniority, but you also didn't get to enjoy it the same way. You don't get to form the same camaraderie. You don't get the, you know, and, and that is a different experience. And I really wanted to write how sophie has to at the end of the day just be okay with having done the job how sometimes that loneliness gets inside um lots of little things like that um there's a scene in one of them when she's relating to a character who she actually forms a friendship with and he makes a comment about you know coming along and and, you know chumming up with, with the pals if that's how she feels and she's like well i you know, I don't want to be a bother, I don't want to cause a problem. Um, but I've never been asked. And he's like, I don't think I've ever heard anyone in the business say anything cross about you. I think that they all think that you're lovely. And then she points out, like, the place they go afterwards to have these drinks is a men's club that women are expressly forbidden to enter. Wow. So it's not that they're excluding her, it's that they don't think about her at all. And when that happens in the story she's really elated because she knows it's not personal whatever we in the year 2020 think about the fairness of that her in the you know in that time in the story is just relieved that it's not that they hate her it's that she's invisible
0: yeah it's crazy stuff but um your new book robie fashionable mm-hmm. materials Book five of Sophie Hollander is set in North Korea. So you're known for meticulous detail. We talked before about how you do a Bible for each book. Um, How much research did you go do to bring an accurate Hermit kingdom to the page? How do you even research something like that? Where do you go to get the information?
2: Oh, man. So much research went into that. (laughs) Um, I can very proudly say every single Intel report that she sends the entire book, those are all date specific. If you check those dates against actual events at the time, they coincide with things like NATO, back and forth with, with North Korea about their nuclear program. Um, when she mentions certain people by name, those are an ambassador to so, you know, to a region or the person for the Secretary of State of the United States coming to get involved. Um, the, I had to write a spy code for this book that's real and works. So not only is it shown in the book and you can see how how it was developed and how it was cracked and stuff in the book, but there are a bunch of um, buried pieces of it throughout the book that if you translate them, make a conversation. I don't know why you would wanna do that, but if you wanted to, (laughs) it is there and you can. Um, This book, like every single date is absolutely true. This story, could be true uh so that was <laughs> it was a lot of work that went in she goes in to try to destabilize their you know emerging nuclear program uh there's a way that she does that that's explained in the book and, and how that works out but at the end of the day um they they don't have one at least not the same sort of program that was um threatened um so it is entirely plausible though not of course um that the mission she goes on in that book could have happened
0: that's incredible i, I mean how do you even get that level of information for someplace like north korea
2: it's... oh gosh um there are bbc documentaries there are several of those uh, medicine sans fortier um did several missions where they went over because um uh glaucoma is quite serious because of malnutrition in north korea and so there are often situations where doctors will barter to come in and then do surgeries to help restore people's vision and when they go in they have camera crews there's a lot of those that footage that you can watch um there's a brilliant documentary um about the mass games that i would recommend um so I just watched as much a Kim Jong Ilia is another really good example, which is a great documentary. I also, uh, there is a woman who um, defected and then went to, you know, she spoke at the UN and there were a great many, um, you know, she went on a tour, she wrote a book. She now has a YouTube channel and all she talks about are like lived realities that her and her family experienced as, as North Korean citizens before she, you know, left. Um, she and her sister were trafficked out and then from there escaped and it just they tell you the most incredible details things that are a uh, uh, stunning because you wouldn't you just don't you don't think that way and you need to get like right down into thinking like people who are not like yourself if you if you aren't doing that I don't know that you're getting into the story it's a grave mistake to think that people are the same all over they are not uh, travel will really teach you that um so i did a lot of that kind of research and just kept working on it um so i'm trying to actually remember that uh, woman's name i'm actually looking it up so i can um a park it's y-e-o-n-m-i park and she does an entire channel called the voice of north korea and it's fascinating stuff really fascinating stuff Um, And I just watched hours and hours and hours of that.
0: Sounds, sounds good. So you're the author of, uh, to date, four Minette Nero books, four Sophie Hollander books, with the fifth one in the series coming out on Valentine's Day. You're saying each series is going to be about eight books?
2: Uh, Let's see, four, uh, six books for Minuet Nero. Okay. Yeah, um, I've got kind of a thing. So... I've been, I've been kind of playing with the audience a little bit with that one. Um, The first two of the Minuet Nero books are written in a specific style because she's a teenager in those books. Mm -hmm. So it's written in kind of a simplistic style. Um, You know, the the structuring of the story is a bit, um, I would say like immature, but the kind of immature, Um, graduating towards, you know, so that like. I kind of didn't want the reader to maybe see where it was going to go that way when it it's a bit of a test um so if you get to I would say Beshnitsa and you stand that character um and you're a fan uh wow okay um then then get to the end of those books maybe and stop because if you stop at that point that book They should end on a note that might seem like a happy ending. That's as much as I'm going to (laughs) say. It's complicated. If you aren't, or if you're reading more like a, you want to know what's going to happen next and that's what keeps you going, um, then most definitely read the Sophie Hollander series, which will close that chapter. So, um, and if you read them, if you read both series, there is an order, I'll post that again and it will be in the the bookshop that you can read the books in that order and it just like laces together and you see the rest of the universe in 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 its in a way. You know, um you'll see how at two at least so far at two very important points these characters ricochet off of each other without actually meeting. And the effects of their their you know impact in the uh, the lives of the other is serious. Okay. So they're both kind of reacting to the actions of the other, though they've never actually met one another.
3: And the
0: two series have been well received. At when these end, do you have plans for that?
2: I do. Um, I want to expand on the idea of. Um, trying to kind of work with the the character the uh, you know the author the the reader relationship i have an idea for a story that i was thinking what if you woke up one day and someone was taking or, or death was taking the soul of your partner and when you cried out to stop they did
0: oh i like it
2: um, because you have an authority that you don't know that you have. Um, Brilliant. I really liked the idea of creating a story that will read like one kind of... Okay, so I, I kind of hate the term lit. I don't hate chiclet, and I have no opinion of that. If you enjoy it, whatever you enjoy reading, that's, that's yeah. not my issue at all. Um, but I kind of hate these ways that certain types of writing. Was, chick lit is one of those terms that's it's almost pejorative. It's there to to undermine the idea of this writing. Like it's it's not mm. legitimate. It's not real. Yeah. It's you know it's a bodice ripper, and I really hate that because I you get that sense that people who read like Tom Clancy novels and just eat that up or people who read um, James Bond books and eat that up, or people who read um you know uh jack reacher or uh, uh, grisham and those are all the same kinds of books yeah you know the same person who would read james bond books and have no issue with it wouldn't read mine necessarily because it's a woman and it's that idea that women write those books for other women and there's something spectacularly uh reductive about that and so i kind of wanted to say what if i wrote a book that looks like on the surface it should be chiclet and really isn't so if you get four chapters five chapters in this book turns and makes you go back and re- reflect on how wrong you were when you were reading the first three or four chapters that yeah. you had misread all of it
1: yeah i love this i like
2: that. And i'm very excited about that okay.
1: yeah. i like that a lot
0: so ruby You've eight books out has a stands, and the ninth, of course, is coming on Valentine's Day. They can be bought on the Irishbookshop.com and on our old friends at uh, Jeff's Amazon. And you, of course, can be found on goodreads and allautter.com. And you can be followed on Instagram as Arizona Colleen. So, That's right, all one word. Ruby, thanks very much for joining us. It's been really interesting and best of luck finishing these two great series.
2: Nothing thanks so much.